We are in the midst of a series that we're calling Armor Up, in which we're walking through Paul's words, the Apostle Paul's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about taking up, putting on the armor of God. And as we talked about last week, you know, there's a couple of different things at play. One is, is just an understanding that you and I, as Christians, we are in a battle. We are in a, a spiritual war, and, and we are warned over and over again in Scripture to not underestimate our enemy, but even worse than underestimating our enemy is probably not even realizing that we are in a battle and that we have an enemy in the first place. Now, the good news is that even though we have an enemy, and he is very formidable, and we are in a spiritual war, we're in a battle— The good news is that God gives us everything we need to be able to defend ourselves and to be able to, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, to stand against the attacks of the enemy. And so Ephesians chapter 6, if you haven't already turned there in your Bibles, turn there with me as we read from Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 10 and read down through verse 14. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, as we talked about last week, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. As I said, we talked about the belt of truth last week and, and what that entails. And we, we, I was talking on, we had Bible study on Sunday night, and uh, somebody brought up the fact that sometimes it's easy for us to confuse our feelings with the truth. And so we have these feelings and what we feel and what we want to be true, and it's easy to, to kind of mix those things with the reality of, of truth. And, and yet the Bible doesn't tell us, Paul doesn't tell us here to put on the belt of feelings, right? He, put, he tells us to put on the belt of, of truth. That's the first piece of armor. And then this week we're going to talk about the second piece of armor that Paul gives us, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, just from a pragmatic standpoint, the, the breastplate on a soldier was designed to protect the soldier's torso. And of course, I don't need to tell you that in your torso, there are some vital organs. And that breastplate was meant to protect those vital organs, not only in the front, but also in the back. Your heart, namely, first and foremost, but also your lungs, your liver, all of those things that it was meant to protect that torso area. Last week, we talked about the belt of truth in that vulnerable area for guys, but the torso also very vulnerable to protect the, the heart, namely, Uh, and in particular, but other vital organs as well. The question is then, what does Paul mean, not just by a breastplate, but by wearing a breastplate of righteousness? What does that mean? What what does that entail? That word righteousness, if you look it up in the Bible, you're going to find reference after reference after reference. It, It is all over the pages of Scripture, either in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you turn over in the New Testament, the the Greek word that, you know, some paints the picture of righteousness, really just means right doing. So righteousness is, is right doing. It's doing the right thing. If you were to ask someone, what is righteousness? Really, that's kind of the answer. It is doing the right thing. It's making the right choice. It is living rightly, living within right. Now, there's a couple of things that are wrapped up in that. That implies that there is a standard, right? 
that there is an objectifiable difference in what is right and what is wrong, and that you and I can discern that and either choose to do right or wrong, or namely that we have been revealed, that's been revealed to us what is right and what is wrong, and that is righteousness. To do the right thing is righteousness. And so when we do the right thing, when you choose to make the right choice as God defines it, you are practicing righteous. You are living righteously. And so that's some of what it means. Now, when we think about righteousness, there's a couple of different connections or thoughts when it comes to righteousness as it connects to God. And if you're taking notes, I made it simple for you. I've just got two little conjunctions that you can fill in. The first one that we have to understand is, is that righteousness is of God. There, there is a righteousness of God. Uh, righteousness is one of his attributes. In many ways, God's righteousness essentially means the same thing as his faithfulness, his truthfulness, that which is consistent with his nature and his promises. In other words, you could say that God always does what he says he'll do, and he always does what is right and just and true. I like what the psalmist says in Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, speaking about God. Love and faithfulness go before you. The psalmist also says in another place that God's laws are righteous altogether. And so there is a righteousness of God, but then there's also a righteousness from God. So you have righteousness of God, but then you also have a righteousness from God. As a quality and an attribute of God, he, in essence, gives it out because he's the only one who truly has it. God's the only one who truly gets it right every single time. Now, you and I can do that sometimes, and we we don't get it wrong all the time, but we don't get it right every time. And so God makes us right through forgiving us when those times when we don't get it right, when we get it wrong, through forgiving us of our sins. We're not righteous because we do, you know, right all the time. We get it right every single time. We can't and we don't but rather we acquire righteousness, we are given righteousness, and we can certainly live in that righteousness, but we are made right because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Philippians chapter three, and being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so it's important to understand that there is a righteousness of God and there is a righteousness that, comes, righteousness that comes from God that makes us righteous through the blood of Jesus, which then connects to the third point. I've already kind of mentioned it, which is more of a practical righteousness. We live it out. We, we, we do right things. We live the right way. But all that comes ultimately from God. Now, understand when Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness, I feel like I, I need to say this. It is not your righteousness alone. There's a lot of discussion. What, what is he talking about? Exactly the righteousness. Is it God's righteousness? Is it living righteously? And I would just say all of the above, all of the above. You, you are righteous because of what Jesus has done for you, but then you are also called to live righteously. They're, they're, one leads to the other. One comes out of the other. But he's not simply talking about your righteousness. You don't put on your righteousness alone because your righteousness is not going to cut it because you don't get it right every time. Only Jesus does. Only God does. But you put on the righteousness of God that is from God, and then you live out of that righteousness. And much of our Christian journey 
is lived in that place. The breastplate of righteousness is not just something that you and I are, you know, we're not just given righteousness. We also, as Paul says, put it on. I, I think of this passage in Galatians chapter, chapter 3. Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You, you've put Christ on, or more, namely, he has, you know, he's put himself on you when you gave your life to him. And so that's when you enter into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's when you clothe yourself with Christ and his righteousness, when you believe in him, when you put him on in baptism. But again, much of our Christian journey is really learning how do I live underneath and out of that righteousness? How do I live being clothed with Christ? How do I live with the breastplate on? How do I put it on and how do I live with the breastplate of righteousness on? And why is that important? And that's what we're gonna kind of talk about for the rest of our time this morning. There's a lot of different things. I, I mean, there's a lot of different ways I can go, but I just wanna give you two things this morning, zero in on two things this morning that I think the breastplate of righteousness does. And I think the first thing it does is it defends us against the tax of condemnation. Defends us against the tax of condemnation. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, it speaks of standing our ground, taking our, our stand against the devil's schemes. Some versions say methods, some versions say strategies. However you put it, Satan has a scheme. He's got a method. He's got a strategy. Satan just doesn't come at you and say, well, I wonder what I'll do today. No, he's got a strategy for you. He's got a strategy for all of us as human beings, but he's got a strategy for you, which kind of goes back to not underestimating the enemy, right? Don't, don't think he doesn't think of you in particular. He's got a strategy for you. Last week, we talked about how one of the primary ways the enemy works is through deception and lies. And so he'll, he'll get you to believe a lie about a certain situation or a half-truth about a certain situation or a certain relationship or a certain circumstance in your life, which is why, as we talked about last week, it's so important to put on the belt of truth to understand what the truth is and to live out of that truth. But another one of the strategies and schemes of the enemy is to attack you and me with condemnation. In Revelation chapter 12, there's this picture, and Scripture paints different pictures of Satan, but namely throughout Scripture, you see two pretty distinct pictures of Satan. And in Revelation chapter 12, that's true as well. He is known as the great deceiver. We talked about that last week. But he's also known as the great accuser. And so you think about what Satan does. He deceives you into sin, and then he accuses you before the Father. We, we have a word for that. It's called entrapment. Satan's into entrapment. And, and so let me say this. You have a responsibility too, okay? You don't have to be deceived. But what he does is he comes along and he deceives you into sin, and then he goes to, it's like you have kids, Right? They get the other one in trouble, and then they go tell mom and dad what they just did. And that's, in essence, what Satan does. He tricks you into sin. He deceives you into sin, into thinking this is a better way. This is God. God doesn't have your best in mind. And then he goes and accuses you before the Father. In fact, it says he accuses you day and night, accuses believers day and night. And, and that's what he's doing in Revelation chapter 12. He's accusing the brothers and sisters, or he's doing that right now. Believers who have already been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, he's still accusing them before the Father. And so just because you have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ by virtue of you putting on Christ in baptism 
doesn't mean that Satan stops accusing you. In fact, probably is accusing you even more because you're not in, on his team anymore because he's a liar and he wants to do anything he can to get you to live out of the one reality that is the greatest reality and that is your righteousness through Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed for you. If he can get you to live in another reality, he's one. Now, let me say that the spirit of God does convict us, okay? There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. The spirit of God does convict us and conviction has to do with my guilt. Not, not feeling guilty, but the fact that you are guilty. You do something, you are guilty of doing that. You are guilty of sinning. The Holy Spirit does convict me of sin, but condemnation is a different ballgame altogether. That has to do with the execution of the punishment, the execution of, of, of you know, that's associated with what you did wrong. Think of it this way. I was thinking about this this week. Think of it like a trial. In a trial, you have different phases, right? You have the conviction phase, which is where they're trying to figure out, did they do this? Did, did, did they commit this crime? But then after the conviction phase is finished, you have the sentencing phase or the condemnation phase where they're trying to see, okay, what's the punishment that then fits the crime? And so spiritually speaking, when it comes to that conviction phrase or phase, the Holy Spirit will convict you. If, if you're not convicted by the Holy Spirit, there's a problem. You need to feel that conviction in your life of sin and, and things that you've, you are off base from where God desires for you to be. And, and the Holy Spirit will do that. He'll confirm where we are off course. And that's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. But what Satan desires to do and what he speaks into our lives is a sentence of condemnation. He wants us to be executed or punished in accordance with, with our sin. Bible says that sin, the, the wages of sin is death. That's what Satan wants for you. He wants you to be punished according to what you have earned and what you have earned through your sin is death. And so he'll pronounce a sentence of condemnation upon us. Now the, the Holy Spirit convicts us, but the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us. Pretty much everybody in here knows John chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But verse 17 Right after that says, for Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world, but to what? To save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. But there's also conviction that comes with that. And so the Holy Spirit will convict, yes, but the Spirit will not condemn. The Spirit will not pronounce a sentence of condemnation. This leads to another difference, I think, when you see the, the Spirit, the difference between the Spirit convicting and, the, the, and Satan, the enemy, condemning. When the Spirit of God convicts me, it points me to my sin, but then it points me to Jesus beyond my sin. What Satan does is he points you to your sin, and then he points you to hell beyond your sin. That's what you deserve. But the Holy Spirit says, no, this is what God has given to you. And so Satan is concerned with the sentence of your execution, right? Satan is concerned with condemning you to what you deserve. And, and by the way, this is, when you live with that kind of condemnation in your life, and some of you know what that's like, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. And, and this manifests itself in, in any number of ways. Some people are so eaten up with a sense of condemnation that they spend their lives trying to medicate themselves. It's where addiction comes into play. 
Other people, they try to shake their feelings of condemnation by just being busier and trying to do more, trying to serve more, trying to get it right. Others try to deal with their sense of condemnation by constantly comparing themselves to others, and what they either do is compare them, they, they tear themselves down or they tear others down. And all of those scenarios may be different, but there's one common denominator. They're all about somebody trying to deal with a sense of condemnation. They're all about somebody being consumed with trying to battle or shake what Satan is bringing into your life and the condemnation that he's trying to have you live under. And the tragedy is when you and I are so much in the grip of condemnation, we're battling with Satan, we're battling with ourselves that we can't even live out and battle for other people. We can't live out and battle in the bigger battle that God has for the world around me and the people around me that I'm in relationship with, which goes back to our series a few weeks ago, because I'm so tied up in the battle for myself. In Ephesians chapter two, earlier in the, in, in, in the book, Paul talks about how we are the workmanship of Christ. That we are, when you are saved, you are created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, to do what is right, to reach out, to, 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 to bring about rightness and righteousness in the world around you. And we'll get to that in just a second, a little bit more. But when you are so wrapped up in condemnation and what you've done and allowing Satan to hold that over you, you can't see the big picture. It's only about you and what you're trying to do and the battle that's going on in your life and you're not living out the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Does that make sense? Because you're so wrapped up in what Satan is condemning you and where he's got you. And he's gonna come at you. He comes at you and me with attacks of condemnation. He gets us so wrapped up in our own battles so that we can't answer the call in, in our lives, the God's call in our lives to be involved in the battle for others. But when we become one with Christ, when we take on his righteousness, when we learn to live with this breastplate of righteousness in place, I think it becomes a defense against those attacks of condemnation. And so you get back to this trial idea. You got the conviction phase, and then you've got the condemnation phase, you've got the sentencing phase. Keep in mind Satan deceiving, you know, accusing us before the Father, and then check out what John says in response to that. This is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll hop into chapter 2. But John writes, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he continues, But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so Jesus is portrayed here as, as your advocate, as your defense attorney. He's the righteous one. He's the only righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice. That word atoning just means covered. So he's the covering sacrifice for your sins, for the whole world's sins, which makes him a perfect defense attorney. Now, I was thinking about this week, this idea of putting in in terms of the trial phase. There is an element where Jesus agrees with Satan on the conviction phase, right? Jesus would, would agree with Satan that, that you sinned, right? He would say, that's why I had to go to the cross in the first place. So there's an element where your defense attorney is saying, yeah, that's, he did it. She did it. But here's where Jesus differs from Satan. Whereas Satan, when it comes to the, 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 the condemnation phase, the sentencing phase, Jesus would, would say, I, I, I agree with the, the guilty as charged part, but the penalty's already been paid. 
You see, when it comes to the sentencing, I've already been there for you. I've already taken the penalty for your sin. That's why we are set free from the penalty of sin because Jesus has already paid the penalty for us. That's why he stands in our defense. And he says, I agree with the conviction, but I don't agree with the condemnation. That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there's now, now therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But just because you're a believer doesn't mean that the enemy still won't try to condemn you because he's a liar and he wants you to live in any reality but the reality that you are righteous through Jesus Christ. That's why we put on the breastplate of righteousness. I think about the old story, maybe you've heard it before, of brother and sister, we'll call them Billy and Susie. So Billy and Susie, they go to their grandparents' house and they live on a farm and they're hanging out and they're having fun for the summer and the first week they get there, Billy's outside and he's got his little twenty-two rifle and he sees a duck on the top of the woodpile and he aims, he shoots, he fires and he kills that duck. Good shot. Only problem is when he gets closer, he realizes that that duck is his grandmother's prized pet. He's just killed it. He doesn't know what to do. So he just decides, I'm just gonna hide the duck. I'm not gonna tell grandma. Maybe she'll think it just flew away. Well, Susie, his sister, sees the whole thing. So later on that evening, they sit down for dinner. And after dinner, grandma says, okay, Susie, it's time for us to clean up. And Susie kicks Billy under the table. And she says, "Uh, Billy's gonna clean up, help clean up the table tonight. Billy gives her kind of a dirty look and she whispers to him, remember the duck. So Billy gets up and cleans the table. All that week, Billy is, you know, or Billy and Susie have their chores to do. And so Susie says, well, Billy's going to do my chores this week. And Billy gives her another dirty look, and and Susie turns and whispers again, remember the duck. Well, all that week, this goes on. And finally, at the end of the week, Billy's just had enough, and he's like, I can't take it anymore. So he goes to his grandma, he confesses. He says, Grandma, I killed your duck. I didn't know it was your duck. I was just shooting, and I I killed your duck. I'm so, so sorry. And Grandma says, that's okay, honey. I saw the whole thing from the kitchen window. You know, it's just a duck, and I'm glad you told me. I was just wondering how long you were going to let Susie make a slave out of you. And the problem is there are so many believers today who allow Satan to make a slave out of them through attacks of condemnation. All the while, we have the reality of the righteousness that God is. And that doesn't mean that we get a free pass to do whatever we want. That's not what, that's not what scripture's saying. But we live out of the reality that you are made right through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Satan's darts just bounce off of that. But the breastplate of righteousness doesn't just defend us from attacks of condemnation. I think it has another purpose as well. As I said, there's several, but the other one that we'll talk about is that I think it marks us and hopefully motivates us as soldiers of restoration, as soldiers of of reconciliation. A soldier's breastplate was literally the biggest piece of armor that he had. It was also very identifiable. And so each army, each nation had their own design on their breastplate. You almost think of it like an athletic jersey, like your, your favorite team's jersey. That's how you know what team you play for. That's how you know what army you are a part of. And so there's something very significant about what's on the Christian's armor, on the breastplate. There's something significant about Paul saying, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that our breastplate is identified by righteousness on it. When we read this description of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, there's a lot of similarities to an Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 59, where God 
is actually pictured as putting on armor. Listen to what the prophet writes in Isaiah chapter 59. This is starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on, listen to this, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Sound familiar? He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. In the context of Isaiah, God is confronting his people who are so preoccupied with doing things right within the temple service and the temple rituals, but they were neglecting what was going on with the needy and the poor and the suffering outside of the temple walls. And so they're, they're, they're more concerned about doing what's right. Let me just put it in modern context. They're more concerned about what's doing right and doing things right in the church walls than they are doing things right outside the church walls. And, and, and so they, they get it right in here, but then they go outside and, and there's a neglecting of what's right outside and reaching out to those who are lost and dying and suffering and poor and needy. And God himself, God here in Isaiah takes it upon himself to make things right, to help the suffering, to help the poor, to help the needy. God himself is pictured as putting on the breastplate of righteousness. He's, he's being identified by righteousness, specifically a righteousness that works out its actions on behalf of the poor and the suffering and the needy. That's what it's being identified by. And in many ways, our righteousness, our living out of the righteousness of God has so much to do with reaching out to those who are suffering and those who are in need. I, I like how one person put it. He said that our righteousness isn't just about where I stand before God. Our righteousness is also about what I'm standing for here on this earth. Let's say that again. Our righteousness is not just where I stand before God, but our righteousness is also what I stand for on the earth, in this life, in this world. What am I standing for? What am I standing up for? What am I living out of? What are my actions portraying that I'm being identified by in this world and in my life and in my relationships? In many ways, us living out righteousness means making an attempt to make something right where it's gone wrong to restore what's been broken, to encourage those who have been discouraged, to put the heart back, literally, into those who have had the heart taken out of them by the enemy, who didn't have the protection of the breastplate, and so their heart was damaged. How do we help put the heart back into them through the blood of Jesus Christ? Those things are all expressions of living out of the righteousness of God and living out the righteousness of God because soldiers don't just have armor for themselves. You and I just don't armor up for ourselves. We armor up for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of those we're in relationship with, the sake of those that we are living around in this world and in our lives. What are we doing for the sake of the kingdom? We're not just called to live righteously. We're also called to help those around us to live righteously as well. Of course, Despite our best efforts, the reality is that obedience, holiness, righteousness, though, we don't get it right. We do sometimes. None of us get it right all the time. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. Which is where the righteousness of God comes. That's where it comes into play. We need the righteousness of God and we need the righteousness from God so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be made right. We can be made righteous before him. And again, that's only possible 
through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not possible through you and me trying to do all the right things and get it right all the time. It cannot be done. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I can truly be made righteous. In essence, what the Bible tells us is that you can be righteous because Jesus is righteous. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, you can be righteous through him. So put on the breastplate of righteousness so that you can stand in the truth of what Jesus has done for you and what he wants to do in you and ultimately what he wants to do through you.